You're listening to Privacy Files, the podcast that makes privacy approachable for businesses and consumers alike. This episode is brought to you by Anatomy Labs, makers of MySudo, the world's only all-in-one privacy app and pseudo platform that cloud-based platform companies turn to for seamlessly integrating privacy solutions into their software. Welcome to episode number 39 of Privacy Files. I'm Rich. And I'm Sarah. In our last episode, we interviewed celebrity YouTuber Kit Boga as we took the plunge into the little-known world of scam call centers. With years of experience baiting scammers and exposing their criminal operations, Kit is one of the top experts in the business. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, you might want to put that one on your save list. It was epic. Today, we're continuing our multi-part series on the dark web by examining dark web crimes. From insider threats and online consumer trust to collaborative mitigation efforts and the overall global impact, cyber crimes committed on the dark web have a far-reaching impact. To help us make sense of the complex relationship between the dark web and cyber crimes, we're welcoming Tammy Harper to the show. Tammy is a senior threat analyst, dark web investigator, and digital forensics and incident response consultant. Tammy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, this is one of those areas I think Sarah and I have touched on a little bit in our last two episodes on the dark web, but we really haven't gotten into the the far-reaching impact of cybercrimes on the dark web. So I think this one's going to be really, really informative for the audience. All right, Sarah, you ready to get this started? Yeah, let's jump in. Okay, let's go ahead and open up a case file on dark web crimes. So Tammy, please, just to kind of kick us off, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you currently do. I am a senior threat analyst, and part of my day-to-day operations are to monitor the dark web for new threat actors and to also monitor for their activities. What are they up to? Who are they talking to? And who are they affiliating with? That way I can get a good map of what is going on. And that's called the threat landscape. I can then use that information to create reports for clientele. Okay. Wow. And so companies will hire you for your services. Is this usually a one-time project or is this an ongoing service that you provide? So for example, if a client has been impacted by a breach and they want to make sure that their data is not or is being sold on the internet or on the dark web, this is where I come in with my connections and my sources and my threat landscape maps. I can absolutely see where the most likely places for that data to end up, if it's being sold, how much it's being sold and who it's being sold to. And with that, we can create a very good uh, report and the clients can then inform themselves better on what their risk management and what their risk appetite on that can be. And so how did you become interested in cybersecurity and the dark web? So that's actually a really, really good question. I have always been fascinated by the hacking scene and I had, I was jailbreaking my iPhone. I was like rooting my Android devices. I was always fascinated with Linux, um, more so than with Windows and Mac OS, for example. And do it yourself, that hacking mentality has brought me to search for more and more insider and the latest in terms of intel on how to do things. And that brings you to forums. And with these forums, you get to talk to people and you really start to build this thirst for this knowledge. 
And I went to school for this as well. And basically, we I was able to study into a path of penetration red teaming that led me into thinking like a criminal. And from there, I've been able to pivot into threat intelligence. And from there, you can still think and act like a criminal, but you're also a researcher. So you have to play ball on both sides. I'd love to ask more about the iPhone jailbreaking, but I don't want to get us shut down. <laughs> I remember watching a, an interview recently, somebody who became the black hat type of a hacker who converted back to the white hat side and said how he started out was he found that it was more interesting to jailbreak or to hack into a video game system than it was to actually play the game itself and actually master the game. More of a challenge. <laughs> and I was like, wow. I mean, when you take it to that level, you you definitely have got a curious mind. So it's Tim, a puzzle, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You really have to have that in your DNA, I guess. I feel like that's a common theme we keep hearing with the guests that we talk about this is they like the puzzles and the aspects of that, putting things together. Yeah, definitely. Tammy, so with respect to the DFIR, I think it's the first time I've heard of it. This is digital forensics and incident response. What are some skills you have to develop to conduct digital forensics? What does that look like? DFIR is a very broad category, but one of the things that you have to have is people skills because as a consultant, as a DFIR consultant, you seek people companies and other clientele at their worst, at their most stressed, they've just been hit. Everything's all the lights are flashing. They have no idea how to handle themselves or how to recover from this. This is why you're there. So definitely being able to communicate and being able to empathize with your client is one of the biggest skills I would say. After that, definitely a very sound base in network engineering, definitely in like virtual environments, like ESXi, absolutely critical to know how to restore those systems. And when it comes to incident response, I guess time is of the essence, right? So a lot of times I think when it comes to companies having data breaches, that can go on for a long time before it's even detected, right? Exactly. In the industry, we say that roughly it's three to six months that a threat actor can be in your system without you knowing. That's a long time. They've hold persistence. And they have back doors. Even if you close one thing, they've got many ways back in. So it's really a thing about keeping your systems up to date and making sure that you have an incident response plan for when this happens. Because it's not a question of if you're going to get hacked. It's more of a question of when you're going to get hacked. Right. And do you deal at all with the social engineering attacks part? So social engineering, I do on my threat intelligence side. Because when I'm talking to threat actors, I definitely have to implement some form of that in terms of being able to obtain the latest ransomware builders and definitely to being able to obtain some intel. There is a little level of social engineering on that side. I guess, uh, Sarah, let's get into the different facets of dark web crimes. Yeah. So with regard to anonymity versus accountability. So in the first couple of dark web episodes, we actually discussed some of the positives about the dark web and many sort of champion it as a place for privacy and a way to avoid government censorship. But of course, with privacy comes the challenge for law enforcement agencies to track and apprehend cyber criminals. So Tammy, what are your thoughts on this sort of delicate balance between maintaining anonymity for legitimate users versus making threat actors accountable? for their criminal actions. Technology is always going to be abused. 
And you have to understand that the technology itself is not illegal. So Freenet, Tor, I2P, ZeroNet, those are not illegal technology. What you do with it is illegal or can be illegal. So when you're an authority and you are looking to police the illegality of your actions, it becomes really a, a chase, like a cat and mouse chase on chasing someone, a ghost that you can't necessarily see, but you're chasing down their actions. And that is a really interesting point because the most effective way at catching someone is through the ripples of their actions. So catching someone who failed at OPSEC, which is operational security, so they got sloppy in terms of hiding their Bitcoin wallets properly or laundering their money properly through the ripples of their effects from the dark web. That's how you catch people. And when it comes to accountability, everybody should be accountable for their actions. And it's the same thing for a lot of different highly publicized environments. If you can't deal with the consequences, don't get involved. Right. Okay, cool. <laughs> now, another topic that we hear about every so often in the news is the controversy around encryption, right? You hear those who are basically privacy advocates that want everything to be completely encrypted and no backdoors. And then you've got this demand on the other side for backdoors for law enforcement, government agencies, whatever, to actually decrypt those communications and see what's going on. And then in the U.S., you get into the Fourth Amendment issues with, you know, reasonable searches and seizures and stuff. So can you speak to the sophisticated encryption technologies that are currently being used on the dark web? We talked a little bit about in our, our first episode in this dark web series about onion routing. You just mentioned that about Tor. But I, I wasn't familiar with garlic routing or as you're calling it, I2P. There are different levels of encryption and different methodologies to encrypt traffic and the network, the architecture, the infrastructure. The Onion, it's layer by layer by layer in one direction. And then when you're going one direction, they're removing every layer. And for garlic encryption, it's every node, every peer is responsible for encrypting and decrypting at the same time. So it's like a little garlic buds inside of a garlic shell. And everything is overlapped with encryption as well. That makes for a very robust encryption. It is also more efficient and faster than the onion. Now, what we're seeing in terms of encryption as well, the idea of encryption, I, I strongly am for encryption. That way you can keep things you want private, your phone is private, your communications are private. Having a backdoor or being able to access encrypted information unauthorized, either at a government level or at a law enforcement level, Leah, that would really undermine everything about encryption or about privacy. What's really going to be interesting in the near future is definitely quantum computers being able to break the current encryption that we have. So that's something to look for. We're already working on algorithms to survive post-quantum, and I'm really looking forward to those. It's a whole other level I hadn't heard of. I yeah. like the names, the onion, the garlic, the way you described it totally makes sense. So that was yeah, helpful. Yeah, I love metaphors. Yeah. <laughs> that, that makes it, that makes that it easier for me. All right, Sarah, how about the global impact? Yeah. So obviously the dark web and its threat landscape is global in nature. It's not just hitting one area. So Tammy, how are cyber criminals from different countries collaborating, sharing information and carrying out attacks across borders? Right now, one of the most successful models threat actors have is called the RAS or R-A-A-S. 
that's also known as ransomware as a service, you will have operators who maintain and develop the infrastructure and the code and the actual malware, the builders, the ransomware. And they will then service this out or sell it for access uh, to affiliates. And those affiliates can be scattered anywhere in the world. So they can be operating out of the United States, uh, anywhere, five eyes, 14 eyes, it doesn't matter. We Affiliates are everywhere. And from there, those affiliates leverage the attacks themselves on their victims. And once the ransom is paid, you'll usually have a split that happens in terms of the ransom split. So usually 80% will go to the affiliate and 20% will go to the operator. So we see this split, for example, with Lockbit. This is a common split. In terms of global impact, companies everywhere are getting hit. Now, a lot of ransomware gangs have countries that you're not allowed to hit. And a lot of gangs, for example, do not allow ex-Soviet countries. So we see that with Lockbit, for example. They don't allow you hitting victims inside of Russia or anywhere that was ex-Soviet. When you're looking at impact outside of those affected countries, businesses are, are getting impacted. Some businesses shut down. Some businesses do go bankrupt, which then affects people's lives. And this is, has a ripple effect everywhere. Your friend and your family can definitely feel the impacts of this because data breaches happen. So even if your company didn't go bankrupt after a, a massive attack, the data potentially got leaked and then individuals can then suffer afterwards for identity theft and fraud and all of that stuff. So does this cross-border collaboration make it difficult for like the individual nations to combat the threats effectively? Exactly, because a lot of these individuals, affiliates, sometimes operate out of countries that do not have extradition. And when they don't have extradition, it makes it harder to really understand and to uh, obtain enough uh, law enforcement power to grab someone. We see a lot of sanctions being placed or most wanted out there for criminals type or affiliates with these large ransomware gangs. And they'll have their name. They'll have pictures of them. They can't arrest them because of where they're located. So that becomes another challenge. And a lot of the times it happens when the ransomware affiliate made a mistake. They either were sloppy with their Bitcoin wallets or they got cocky and started talking to someone and bragging. And that usually is how things happen. Let's take a quick break for this message from our sponsor. Are you tired of big tech spying on you? MySudo is the world's only all-in-one app that gives you back control of your privacy. By creating digital profiles or pseudos, you can compartmentalize your online activities by setting up a unique phone number, email address, and handle for things like shopping, accessing free content, and using dating apps. This breaks the data trail linking back to your personal info, thus reducing your digital exhaust. Each pseudo also includes a private web browser with add and tracker blocker. Want to stop companies from sharing data related to your transactions and spending habits? Set up a MySudo virtual card and bring peace of mind that your transactions are secure and private. To learn more, visit mysudo.com. That's mysudo.com. Stay private. I wanted to touch a little bit on before I get into insider threats and corporate espionage. You touched on the ransomware gangs, and that one is it's a fascinating topic to me. Obviously, the best offense in this case is just a good defense. But if you do get caught up in ransomware, do you have any advice for how a company you know, can navigate that tricky issue? Is, 
can you negotiate what you have to pay in terms of a ransom or is it you're pretty much you're dead in the water, I guess? So that is a very tricky point. There are companies out there that will negotiate on your behalf. Absolutely. But the best thing to do is immediately contact your counsel, your legal counsel, and to have them go through the requirements of, do you have to inform your clientele? Do you have to uh, breach notification, essentially? Do you have to start preparing credit monitoring for your clientele and for your employees as well? Assess the risk. Everybody has a different risk appetite. Everybody has different risks. And if you do involve another third-party negotiation firm, they will then attempt to lower the costs and in some cases potentially be able to negotiate a substantial offer. But here's the thing. If the threat actors sense that they are talking to a firm on your behalf, because the threat actors do not want to negotiate with experts. They want to negotiate with someone who is stressed, who is scared, and that way they can make more impulsive decisions. So if threat actors get a sense that they are negotiating with a firm through languages and how methodologies, uh, how they're because they, they're expert negotiators themselves, they could just leak everything. This has happened many times. Uh, for example, there was the Vokbit and Royale Mail. They went on and blasted the negotiators of Royale. They were basically saying, hey, we want you to get a new negotiator. That was fascinating. Yeah, this I was just looking it up. This reminds me of the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack that happened in May of 2021 that pretty much shut down most of the, the oil and that. gas delivery on the East Coast of the U.S. And I don't know how many millions of dollars that was that they finally had to just settle. But you, you can imagine how much money they were losing just every hour by not having that flowing. It sounds like there is some negotiation opportunity. How do they typically make these payments? Is it in cryptocurrency or some other some other form? The actual, when it comes time to make payments, this is where it gets difficult. Some corporations are bound by sanctions and you do not want to make a payment that can then be flagged as you breaking the law in your country either. So sometimes even though you want to pay the ransom, you are legally not allowed to because of political sanctions or company sanctions. But if you are able to make a payment, cryptocurrencies is usually how that happens. Okay, Tammy, let's uh, let's move on to insider threats and corporate espionage. So that's a big topic. And Sarah and I, a few episodes back, and I think you're actually um, might be connected with, with Robert on LinkedIn, but we interviewed Robert Kerbeck, someone who's made literally millions, at one point, millions of dollars a year being a corporate spy. And he's got a fascinating story just talking about the ins and outs of how that works. And just the, he calls it rusing, of course, but that's the title of his book is Ruse. But it really gets into the social engineering and how do you work the psychology of somebody on the inside in a company just on the phone, right? Low tech, not sophisticated hacking skills or anything like that, because you hear all the time the weakest link is typically just the, the person in the company. So now what I'm really curious about is just how does the dark web facilitate things like corporate espionage and insider threats? How do these kind of play together to help criminals uh, carry out these acts? On the dark web allows for a platform for individuals to discuss controversial subjects without creating a lot of debate or a lot of disruption. For example, if I were to talk about 
an individual or even an individual who would want to, a disgruntled employee would want to take down their company, if they were to discuss this on Facebook, it would generate a lot of response. It would create a lot of debate. And that interaction, those signals definitely would create alerts on the dark web. A lot of people are just going to agree and agree and agree and agree, silencing a lot of the discussion. So when you have like-minded people come together and discuss things, you can definitely have foster an environment where a lot of shady transactions can happen. So when it comes to insider threats, there are a few things. A lot of what I like to see is initial access being sold from a company on the dark web. An employee or a representative of that company or even someone who is not affiliated with that company will say, hey, I've got access to this company. I'm selling it for five grand, $800 or whatever the price is. Credentials work, here's your initial access. And then ransomware affiliates can then take this access and already have an established foothold within the company and then they can spread their malware. Different types of agreements can be created. So for example, initial access broken system can say, hey, I want 15% or whatever of the, of the ransom instead of upfront. Or if it's just upfront, they can do that as well. So that's one way insiders can become a threat is by selling access to their company. Also, another way that it can become a threat is just by simply uploading classified or confidential company information on the dark web. And sometimes you can even do this accidentally. How many times have we seen exposed GitHub repositories or even S3 buckets completely exposed, unprotected to the public, exposing company information and company data? So what you want to do is make sure that you have data leak protection and that you have a really established a zero trust architecture. So you don't trust your employees and that way you you don't trust your threat actors and nobody can access things without being having the proper credentials or having the proper permissions. I'm just curious. I don't know if you know the answer or not to this, but are there literally like forms or certain sections of the dark web that are just dedicated to insider trading, corporate espionage type conversations, or is it just literally mixed in with a bunch of other, I guess, illegal types of conversations? It's usually mixed. There are definitely some forums that dedicate to corporate espionage. So for example, there's a gang called, what's more of a forum called Industrial Spy. They haven't been very active, but in the early 2022, they were quite active and they were basically providing data from as corporate, like on more of a corporate espionage platform, which was really cool. Usually what you'll see is that it will be mixed in with other conversations. And there's a really famous initial access forum called RAMP. And this one is extremely difficult to get into. If you have nobody to vet yourself in, it's around 500 USD to just get in. And this forum, what will happen is a lot of individuals will be selling initial access to companies. I would imagine the Securities and Exchange Commission has some type of law enforcement investigative arm working in the dark web looking for insider trade secrets being shared. Absolutely. If you look at how many users are active on a forum, you have to imagine there's a substantial amount of that that is LIA or law enforcement agencies. Wow. So they're already in there. (laughs) Yeah, I get they're crawling around. That's why, again, I'm staying away. Right. (laughs) 
There's too much in it. I can move on to sort of the psychological impacts. Yeah, let's cool. do it. So I found some statistics on the dark web. I wanted to, I wouldn't go on the dark web, but it's about the dark web. I wanted to touch on really quick from an article. It came out this February, 2023 called 21 Intriguing Dark Web Statistics. So with Tor being the most popular dark web browser, they reported 2 million active users in 2022 with almost 85% being male and the average age being between 26 to 35 years old. And according to the dark web statistics, the U.S. accounted for almost 35% of the dark web daily user count. It translates to about 800, just over 830,000 users. And then Russia took second place with almost 12% and Germany ranked third with 7%. And according to a survey, most Tor users use Onion services for anonymity and as many as almost 71% of 2018 survey respondents claim to use Tor for anonymity. And furthermore, almost 63% said they used it for additional security. Another article I had found called, Are We Ready to Battle with Mental Health Issues Linked with the Dark Net? And this one said, a 2020 study found out that there's a real addiction to the dark net that can cause mental health issues for an individual either as single or multiple symptoms, such as anxiety and fear, paranoia, feelings of guilt, insomnia, concentration problems, avoiding social contact, isolation, loss of appetite, and emotional instability. And to finish it off, the article also stated that the dark web can also be a breeding ground for cyberbullying and online harassment, which can have a profound impact on an individual's mental health. The lack of accountability and anonymity on the dark web can embolden individuals to engage in aggressive and harmful behavior. So Tammy, based on your experience and what you've seen with the dark web, what are your thoughts on these psychological tolls that dark web crimes can have on individuals like cyberbullying or even take a toll on society with child exploitation and the distribution of graphic content? What do you think? As a threat intelligence researcher, I go down way too many rabbit holes and I can see myself definitely checking some of those boxes. I have seen direct impact from individuals who have been the target of cyberbullying, doxing, and other sextortion, for example. And on all of those instances, the individuals always feel they are the ones at fault. They're the ones who have made the mistakes and the, as a victim, they're the ones that have made a mistakes and that they brought this upon themselves by not being smart enough or not being knowledgeable enough on how to protect themselves. It's important to remember that if you are the victim of these attacks, you are not stupid or you did not do anything wrong. These were deliberate and sophisticated methods and attacks to, to target you. Now, when you are in a negative space like the deep web or the dark web and you're exposed to horrible graphic images and even ideas, new ideas or ideas that are just not considered appropriate, you start to become desensitized and then you start to think, hmm, maybe that could happen. Maybe that, and then you start to question things. This is part of the radicalization and this, we can definitely see this even on the clear web. It's not necessarily isolated to the dark web. And it's unfortunate, it happens everywhere. The human nature is meant to be susceptible and open to new ideas, even if these are negative or positive ideas. And it's just about to how to combat that is just being able to talk to your friends, talk to your family. And if you have any of these questions or these horrible ideas, definitely talk to someone you trust so that you can at least say, hey, is this all right? <laughs> Absolutely. It kind of reminds me too, just of 
the news in general today and social media overall. It just I, feels I, dark sometimes. I, I just find yeah. looking at either one or both just brings me down. Yeah. It's like social media. You can just feel like, oh, I've been on this for so long. I, I feel like you're sort of spiraling into negativity and hopelessness and, oh, things are going to end. Things are terrible. And it's sort of like you have to remove yourself from it. Talk to somebody about it. Take yourself out of it. Take a break if you need to. But yeah, I totally get that. Absolutely. Tammy, let's move on to the whole concept of trust. This is a fascinating topic and how it bleeds over, like you said, from the dark web to the clear net. So it's obviously it's evident there's a strong public perception regarding the association between the dark web and illicit activities. So maybe you can discuss a little bit about how illicit activities on the dark web can bleed over and undermine trust in legitimate online platforms and services. If you are a company for example, Clop, Clop Leaks is leaking a whole bunch of companies. Trust and reputation goes on both sides. As a company, you want to be able to show that you were able to take adequate measures to protect your client's information. And even if it was breached, you were able to prove that you, or even demonstrate as part of your reputation, you did everything you could to mitigate and to minimize the damage. On a threat actor side, trust your reputation is everything. If you are known as a gang or as a threat actor who does not honor their deals, so let's say someone pays you and you still leak their data, your chances of getting repeat business dwindle and get less and less every time. So when you're a threat actor, you want to make sure that you are always honoring your word to the best of your ability. Because business is business. Threat actors are mostly threat actors, unless you're hacktivists or are in it for revenge, you're in it for the money and you want to continue making money. Everybody is a client. Every victim, unfortunately, can, is a client. An honest criminal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's an oxymoron, right? <laughs> but again, and how do they find out? I mean, is it, um, I mean, I, I guess if you're on the dark web enough, it's word of mouth, but I think we touched a little bit on one of or both of our earlier dark web episodes, episodes where we were talking about the concept of review sites or just having Amazon type reviews just for threat actors. How does that information get out so that that community of cyber criminals knows that, for instance, let's say Tammy, who's on the dark web doing something nefarious, that Tammy is good for her word. How, how does that get out? On forums, your persona, your username is everything. And a lot of these forums have reputation scores attached to your username. So when you're on your forum, you'll see like a plus or a minus. If it's like plus 100, plus, you'll see a, a sliding scale for that. Also, on forums, when new forums pop up, they will automatically block out very well-known lore-based individuals so that nobody can take their names and pretend and impersonate someone. So definitely your reputation is key. It's actually king or queen in that environment. That's crazy. <laughs> it is. It's very sophisticated. Yeah. Building trust in that environment. <laughs> Let's take a quick break for this message from our sponsor. The global average cost of a data breach is nearly $4.5 million, but that's viewing it from a liability perspective. Today, privacy is a value proposition for software providers. When you develop a reputation for protecting customers' personal information, you don't just acquire new customers, you make them loyal. And Suno Platform is the world's premier cloud platform for providing developers with a menu of enterprise-ready SDKs and APIs that make integrating privacy solutions into your software so easy. 
Built for developers by developers from identity wallets and password managers to virtual cards and secure encrypted communications, Pseudo Platform has you covered. Go to market quickly with a privacy platform that is scalable, flexible, and secure. To learn more, visit pseudoplatform.com. That's pseudoplatform.com. All right, I guess ethics and responsibility. I think with regard to technology providers, there's sort of these ongoing debates about encryption backdoors, data retention policies, the balance between privacy and security. So Tammy, do technology providers have ethical responsibilities when it comes to the role they play in mitigating the dark web's threat landscape? Well, that's a really good good point. Like, for example, if you think about AI, should creators of AI products also create products to detect their AI? <laughs> now, if you have a dark web, you're really just creating proxies or just distribution models. It's hard for you to create a way for that not to be abused without creating a backdoor into it that is absolutely designed to make it abused or or a backdoor into your encryption and then just neutering your entire infrastructure. The responsibility of a vendor or of, of, a, of a, someone who's creating these applications and these platforms, their responsibility should be to make sure that there is proper documentation and proper warnings. But a lot of this stuff is used at your own risk. Got it. Okay. Yeah. On the uh, the collaboration side, so obviously dark web mitigation is a big deal if you're trying to limit the negative impacts that that has on companies, society in general. I mean, how critical is international collaboration and public-private partnerships in combating these threats that are posed by the dark web? The dark web is more, it's a breeding ground for a lot of a lot of threat actors and people want to chase the clout, as they say. People want to make a name for themselves and they will leverage attacks or advertise attacks against corporations. And sometimes they don't even happen. So as a corporation, what you want to do is you do want to implement some level of monitoring on the dark web in any shape, form, or capacity. If you can't afford it, definitely try to have some form of automated process that can definitely help uh, make it more affordable. But being able to have that intelligence will most like sometimes you'll see a zero day exploit brand new on the dark web. Someone just cooked it up and they've been selling it and your company is vulnerable to that, you, if you have that intelligence, you can patch it right away and you can basically mitigate your services before the zero date even becomes a threat. If you don't have that intelligence, then you can definitely become susceptible to that. It sounds like from our first couple of episodes, it's not as easy, of course, to navigate the dark web like it is the clear net. So when you talk about dark web monitoring services, how complicated is that to really... If you, I guess, let's just say you've got a particular thing that you're looking for. How complicated is that to monitor on the dark web versus, let's say, doing OSINT research on the clearnet? The hardest thing is that there's no search engine. There's no true search engine. So you'll have to have a list. I have thousands of onion links in my bookmarks that I can go through and I can definitely use as my index database. If you don't have the ability to monitor, you definitely want to be able to, because it is extremely difficult because it's not just Tor. There's I2P, there's Freenet, ZeroNet. And now the big golden star right now is Telegram. A lot of individuals and a lot of groups are moving away from hosting their own 
hidden service and going straight to Telegram because you can literally just nuke an entire channel within a second and delete all evidence of any wrongdoing. And I think that's a good point too. I think we covered this in, I believe it was our interview with with the former law enforcement deputy who worked at the sheriff's office in Florida, that there's multiple versions of the dark web, right? Something like 17. So you might be in one version, but that's not going to have what you're looking for because maybe it's in the other 16. I mean, is that kind of how the dark web works? Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of threat actors that I monitor who are, for example, stealers, dealer logs. So what those are is those those are individuals or a group of individuals who host a malware that goes into your browser, dumps all your credentials, even on your system, and backs up a whole bunch of, of data. So you like your crypto wallets, NFTs, credentials on your browser, and ships it off. And then individuals will package all of these logs or stealer logs, as they're called, and then they will uh, put them on a Telegram channel. A lot of what we see is that there's a subscription base to these channels. So you can pay 10 US dollars, for example, and then you get access to the Telegram channel that gives you unlimited stealer logs. A lot of these stealer logs then make it into the other forums. So like LeakBase, for example, will host these stealer logs and that will disseminate more and more and then it will end up to the clear web. Information loves to propagate. That's the nature of it. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'd like to touch on that just really briefly because the, the the crypto world is fascinating. And I know the, the true hardcore believers in Bitcoin and all the other cryptocurrencies will say it can't be breached, right? This is impossible. You can't take my crypto. So you're saying that this is one kind of attack vector that could compromise people's wallets. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah. If I can hold your private key to your crypto wallet, I can essentially hold your entire crypto wallet. So this malware is designed to go into your system and to get and look for that private key. So this is for cold wallets that are stored, not like, for example, the ones that are stored in the cloud, but this is for the ones that you store on your system uh, locally. So if you can lose that private key, you lose access to that wallet. Wow. And and so these so some kind of a virus or something can actually get into your device and take that key is what you're saying. Yeah. Oh. They're called stealers. So you have Titan Mystic, which is a new one. What? You have a whole bunch of different stealers out there. This is really fascinating. I, guess another I, have, episode I have one more question. Yeah, <laughs> we'll probably have to create content for another episode. But I guess one more question I have on that then is what are some common ways that that gets onto your device and compromises your, in this case, you're saying your cold wallet? So if you get an email, you'll usually get it through a phishing attack or we're seeing sometimes we can see SEO poisoning. We can definitely see drive-by downloads happening, compromised websites, or basically someone saying, hey, can you just take a look at this file for me? It's a zip or a PDF. And then different vectors of introducing that malware into your systems are used. Oh, wow. We also covered a few episodes ago too, this concept of a, a no-click I guess, invasion or whatever you want to call it, right. attack where I think it was, uh, we were talking about that company in Israel that created the, oh, what was that? NSO. Is that what it was? I, yeah. I think it might have been that episode. It, it, I, I don't know if they were the ones that invented that, but is that another way that something like this can get onto someone's phone and compromise their cold wallet? Absolutely. So what that you're referring to is someone who would be able to chain exploits together to ultimately get to something. The malware itself is already highly sophisticated. 
they communicate with command and control servers, they're able to jump credentials and then send them off. And this is why using good passwords, good strong passwords are extremely important. And if you're really a fan of privacy, using something like a YubiKey, where it's a physical device that you authenticates yourself onto the platform so that there's no way, there's no password to crack or to steal. One more question on the collaborative approaches, I guess, to dark web mitigation. So do you have any examples of successful collaboration or partnership between governments, law enforcement agencies, or maybe let's say technology companies that uh, you could use just to highlight how this all works? Absolutely. So we have a very popular group this year that was essentially shut down. This group is called Hive, and they were shut down January 26, 2023. And this was a joint task force between multiple law enforcement agencies across the world. And what happened is they were able to successfully infiltrate Hive by legal means, they mentioned. And from there, they were able to become affiliates and they were able to provide decryption keys to victims' networks and infrastructure as behind Hive's back. So Hive was basically, they were able to save, I think it was like $100 million worth of victim payments from that. So definitely collaboration happens 100%. Wow. So sort of to, I guess we're nearing the end of the episode, one topic I want to talk on was sort of dark web in it as a reflection of societal issues. So Tammy, how is the dark web a reflection of broader societal issues? Can the motivations and activities on the dark web shed light on underlying systemic problems that need to be addressed, like economic disparities, geopolitical conflicts, cultural tensions, things like that? Absolutely. So it happens at all levels of society. If an individual does not feel welcomed in society, they could turn to someone who is looking to accept them into their community. And sometimes that leads them to the dark web. And then they will see commonality within other individuals. Hey, I'm not so different. And then they become entrenched. And depending on the ideas that are being shared, sometimes radicalized. Now, when you're looking at how that mirrors society, you can also think of the dark web as the ugliness of reality, because there's no censorship. There's not a lot of debate. So if you say, hey, I hate this group of people, you'll have a lot of people who agree with you. And even though they don't necessarily agree in reality, they won't ever say that in public, being able to say, I don't like this group of people in on the dark web is so easy to do and just puts up a lot of support for that idea. Mm. And Tammy, what's your overall perception, I guess, of dark web activities? Do you say it's mostly good? Is it mostly bad? Is it kind of half and half? What do you think? I think we don't see a lot of the good. I see a lot of the bad, mostly the bad, because that is my job. I'm, I'm in there every day and it's a passion of mine. So it doesn't feel like work. And I just absolutely see it every day. But when you hear, for example, whistleblowers or people in other countries being able to use Tor successfully or other dark uh, deep webs to circumvent government censorship and to be able to show atrocities that are happening in their countries, that always makes me happy that the technology does have a good use and it should be used like that. Where do you think the dark web is going? Have you been able to 
My prediction is that it's going away from tour. It's going away from hosting your own hidden service. It's going to definitely become more chat-based and definitely Telegram is going to be the next big future for deep web and darknet activity. Really? Interesting. Telegram. And I guess maybe also kind of the culture, because we talked about that in our last episode. Do you see the culture of the dark web changing any, or is it kind of been status quo for you? Culture always changes. So what I've noticed is there's always a hierarchy in terms of because of reputation and actual individuals that actually can become a threat. There's a lot of people on the dark web who are curious, who are just posting, hey, thank you. Thanks for sharing this link. Have nothing to do with the actual like crimes being committed. They're just spectators. There's more spectators than actual threat actors. A lot of threat actors are like celebrities online. And that culture, I don't think is going to change all that much, especially in the threat actor landscape. And I think it's just going to change venue, but it's definitely not going to be changing anytime soon. Yeah. Well, this was was a good interview. I like that side of it. Yeah. We touched on cyber crimes, but we just didn't really get into the details and the different angles like this. I think this is really informative for us. Uh, Tammy, anything else you wanted to cover in the area of uh, dark web crimes before we wrap it up? If you do find yourself a victim of cybercrime, either doxing or cyberbullying, reach out to someone that you know and trust. It can be very scary and it's not as bad because people who love you will help you. And I guess just maybe some parting words, if you're not a independent journalist under the tight <laughs> scrutiny <stay> <laughs> of yeah, of a dictatorship or you have other reasons to be keeping a low profile for good reasons, not illicit right. reasons. I, I guess the ultimate takeaway is probably stay away from the dark web. Not really a great place to hang out. I agree with that because it's like you're in a bar and then something happens in the bar. There's a big fight that breaks out. The police come in. They don't know who they're looking for. And they're just going to take everybody into custody, at least initially. So it's better to just keep away. You'll be guilty by association. Absolutely. Just because you're there. All right. Well, I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much for your time, Tammy. And uh, yeah, I think this was a great one. Any, any other parting words from you, Sarah? No, that was great. Thanks for your time, Tammy. Yep. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Yeah, thanks, Tammy. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. In our next episode, do we have one for you? We'll be talking to a former NFL player who played in Super Bowl 26 on the winning side. And the topic will be celebrity privacy and maybe a few unrelated topics as well, because when you have a former NFL star in your studio, that's what you do. Until next time, don't forget, privacy is a human right.